Can anybody tell me what this symbol means? All right. Bunny rabbit. No. This is not little bunny foo-foo. All right. Is it? All right. Okay. So we've got several different answers up here. Uh, I've heard peace. I've heard victory. V for victory. All right. Um, originally, I mean, I don't know if anybody used this before 1940s, but originally this came out as uh, V for victory. Uh, this was, I forget, I just, they just left me. Who it was that did it in Britain? Who was the, who was the Prime Minister? Churchill, thank you. Uh, Winston Churchill raised the V for victory, right? And then, um, you know, we've, we've seen the famous picture of uh, Nixon, right, getting off the plane, and he's got two Vs. You know, you probably all seen that. Probably all seen that. Um, so V for victory, right? But yet, the first thing that I heard, for, that I heard from many people was what? Peace. Peace, Peace man. Right? In 19... Late 60s, 70s, yep. The 1960s and 70s with all those hippies. How many of you had long hair? Let's see it. All right, anybody? Yep, okay. Russ is willing to admit it. Good job, Russ. All right, so we had some hippies in here. My mother-in-law was a hippie, so, you know, it's Okay. I won't, I won't look, look down on you for any reason. All right, so peace, right? It was kind of, this was, this was to go against the war, right? It was, it was taking the symbol of victory of the war and turning it into something else. It was peace, right? And there was, there was the call for peace. Of course, nowadays, um, you know, this just means whatever. I know, it just means I'm, I'm just throwing this up in a picture because it's cool, right? Uh, I don't think most people, most young people nowadays probably really even understand necessarily that it means peace anymore. Um, in fact, depending on which way you turn it, it could mean something different in different parts of the world. So just be safe and always do it like this. All right, if you're going to do it, all right. Uh, but peace, right? We, uh, we, we symbolize this with peace. We, nowadays, you know, we don't think so much of, as victory, usually in, in, uh, in sports or somebody's won a game, they're not doing this, they're usually doing this. <laughs> we're number one, right? So it's not victory anymore, it's we're number one. So we tend to associate this symbol with peace. And we're gonna talk about peace this morning. Um, you know, peace is a, is a very common word that we hear a lot, um, not just in the, in the idea of, you know, you know, make love, not war, you know, hippie style peace, but, but we, we've heard the, the calls for peace Many times, even in my lifetime, um, in, in specifically in a certain part of the world. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The Middle East, right? In fact, we have a, pray, a phrase, right? We say, pray for peace in the Middle East, right? Because it kind of rhymes. It makes it make easy to remember. Pray for peace in the Middle East. Um, you know, Scripture tells us that here on earth, there's never going to be peace. Did you know that? Here on earth, there is never going to be peace amongst men because we as fallible human beings really don't want peace. What we really want is our way. And as much as we talk about peace and as much as like uh, those countries talk about having peace and they have these peace discussions and they come with, they create these treaties and all these things, eventually they're going to be broken because in the end, everybody wants his own way. We don't really want peace. But this morning, 
I want to look at this passage, and, and as we look at this passage, I see here um, five impacts of godly peace in our life. In fact, that's the title of the sermon. If you're not, oh, so smart. You're so smart, Troy. Five impacts of godly peace. And as we look at this interaction between Jacob and Esau, 20 years after what has happened in the past, we see, in my opinion, the impacts of God's peace on the situation. Because the only peace that we can really hope for is godly peace. And godly peace oftentimes does not look like what we think peace should look like. See, we, just like every other human being, when we think of peace, we think of really getting what we want. I'll be happy, I'll be peaceful if everything is the way that I want it to be. If everything is the way that I hope that it will be. But yet godly peace produces different fruits in our life. It's not focused on our own selfishness. In fact, look at the big idea this morning. It says, when we pursue God's peace, rather than self-serving peace, and I put that in quotes because it's not really peace, self-serving peace, our desires and decisions are transformed to bring glory to God. Let me read that one more time. When we pursue God's peace, Rather than self-serving peace, our desires and decisions are transformed to bring glory to God. And as we look at this passage this morning, I see five different ways that Jacob's mind and his actions have changed. Last week, Eric talked about this idea of, of Jacob moving from a state of fear to a state of faith. And as he moves from that state of fear to that state of faith, he, what comes with that faith is God's peace on his life. God's peace with the situation. Now, the situation hasn't changed. Do you notice that? What's the, what's the, what does it say right there at the beginning of this passage? It says, Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So as far as Joseph, uh, Jacob's, I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to mess it up, just FYI. So if I say Joseph, I mean Jacob. As far as Jacob's concerned, what he sees hasn't really changed at all. He still sees Esau coming. He still sees 400 men. Um, and, and the situation's the same, but rather because he has moved from a state of fear to a state of faith, he has peace of God. And as we look in this passage, I believe that the peace of God gives him a different mindset. It changes the way that he thinks about the situation. It changes the way that he acts in this situation. And if we are going to pursue God's peace, then that is going to change the way that we respond to situations as well. And we'll look at that this morning. But let's go through the passage, uh, hopefully fairly quickly here this morning, and, and uh, take a look at this. The first observation, the first impact of godly peace that I see is that godly peace removes fear. Godly peace removes fear. And again, this is kind of piggybacking off of what, what Eric preached last week. But um, we, we see Jacob moving from a state of fear and anxiety to a state of faith and rest and comfort. Um, and, and we don't just see that in the previous passage, but even here at the beginning of this passage, what do we see? We see he looks up and here comes Esau and here comes his 400 men 
And they're coming, I don't, I don't know, I just, I have this vivid imagination that kind of pictures them just like, you know, you know, whipping the horses and, you know, bearing down. I don't even know what they're probably riding camels for all I know. I don't know. But, I, you know, I just kind of see them bearing down, you know, and, and, and coming really fast. I don't know if that's exactly what it looked like or not. But, but he sees um, all these things happening that were still happening. But yet he responds in a different way than he has before. See, in the past, we've seen Jacob uh, in the last chapter send uh, herds of gifts before him to Esau. Why did he do that? Partially as a payment of a debt, right? Look, I, I know I, I stole some things from you. I stole your birthright, you know. He's, he's trying to make things right in some degree to his brother, but also it clearly says that it was to appease him, right? He's trying to, he's trying to kind of fix things on his own. He's trying to make sure that, that um, you know, he's kind of made everything right with Esau before Esau even gets to him. We've seen Jacob uh, in the last passage split out his possessions into two camps, remember? And, uh, and he split them out into two camps so that if something happened to one of them, what would happen to the others? They could escape, right? If, if one camp got attacked, then they could escape. It's all about self-preservation, is it not? He's trying, to, he's trying to make sure that he's still got stuff, that he's still protected. And, uh, and we've seen Jacob yet move from fear to faith after his wrestling match with God in the last passage. And we see something a little bit different here. As God's peace removes fear from Jacob's life, as he looks up and sees the circumstances are exactly the same as they were yesterday, but his response is different. What does he do? He, he, he lines up the family to greet them, right? And he does, he does this in an interesting order. It was, it was probably, um, I don't think it was necessarily to protect Rachel and, and Joseph nearly as much as it was to kind of show the order of significance in his life um, because you've got the servants and their children and then Leah and her children and then Rachel and Joseph, right? But where did Jacob go? Was he behind them? He went to the front. That's a little different from what we've seen in the past, right? That's a little bit different attitude. Instead of, instead of hiding behind all these people, well, you know, if he gets to the, to the servants, maybe Leah and Rachel and I can get out of here. If he gets to Leah, well, maybe Rachel and I can get out of here. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us that that's what he's thinking uh, because that's not what he did, right? He lines his people up and then what does he do? He goes before them. And it's, part of, part of this is tradition, all right? There's a, there's a context here that we're not familiar with here in 20th century America. Um, part of this is tradition, or 21st century, sorry. Uh, and, and, and so it's a little weird to us, but he goes before and he does what? He bows seven times. And the idea here is that, you know, he would... He would walk ahead and he would bow and then he would keep walking towards them. He, was, he didn't just stop and go, you know, wasn't some weird, you know, Japanese back and forth thing, right? He's, he's walking, he's walking and, he's, and he bows and then he walks some more and he bows. He somehow, he's calculating, you know, the distance between until that seventh bow generally is right before or close to uh, the person that he's bowing to. And in this case, that would be Esau. 
And so we see a difference in how he's, he's interacting with this thing that should cause fear. I, I don't know about you, but if I see a guy with 400 men, I'm just going to assume that they're armed. Scripture doesn't tell us they're armed, but I would assume so. Um, you know, coming towards me, I would probably be a little spooked. <laughs> um, and, and I probably would not be going out there bowing seven times, you know, sticking my neck out in front of everybody else. But that's what he did. Here's the guy who's tried to manipulate every situation to his own good. He's, he's tried to twist everything. He's tried to take advantage of every opportunity he can to keep himself safe, to get the things that he wants. And yet here he is, after having this wrestling match with God, with the peace to walk out in front of everyone else and basically just give himself up. He shows honor to his brother. He calls him Lord several times in the passage. Um, he, he didn't even really kind of, it, it, was, it was just this idea of you are someone who needs to be respected. And I'm going to do that in front of my family. I'm taking on the responsibility. And so he comes before Esau. Godly peace removes fear. Have you ever had a situation like that? Where in the world's eyes, everything that, that is going on around you really should just cause you to be afraid. Like it doesn't seem like there's a way out. It doesn't seem like there's a good choice, a good option. And, and it just seems like any way you turn, you're probably going to be hurt. But yet, the Bible promises us that we can have peace, even in those times. That we can have peace that removes fear. In fact, New Testament tells us that we can have peace that passes understanding. We can have peace in the midst of the storm in a way that the world doesn't even understand. It doesn't make any sense how we can have peace when everything around us is going crazy. When everything around us seems to be against us, we can have peace without fear because we know the one who's in control. And you know, Jacob knew the one who was in control. He knew, he had wrestled with the God who had promised to bring him back safely. And despite everything that had happened the last 20 years, he had faith in this God and this God gave him peace that got rid of, that removed his fear. Not only does godly peace remove fear, but godly peace restores relationships. Godly peace restores relationships. What do we see here? We've seen Jacob hurt Esau. He deceived him out of his birthright. He stole away his blessing. I mean, Esau has every right to be angry with him. We've seen Esau vow to kill him. And it wasn't, it was public enough that somebody heard it and passed it along to Rebecca. And he was angry. He's vowed to kill Joseph or Jacob. We've seen Esau coming to meet him with 400 men. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us why in the world he had 400 men with him. I don't know. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, if you, if, you were, if you were coming out in peace, why do you need 400 men? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was just some sort of tradition that they came with. I don't know. 
Um, the Bible doesn't tell us that he necessarily came with those men with malice. We don't know that. So we can't say that he came out, you know, planning to kill Jacob. We don't know that. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But it is interesting that he brings 400 men with him. I don't know if he just didn't know what to expect from Jacob. That's probably a pretty good possibility, given what Jacob has done over the last 20 years, or at least 20 years ago. Maybe, maybe it was more to protect himself from Jacob than, than to attack him. I don't know. But Esau has come with 400 men. But yet, what do we see when they come together? What happens? In verse 4, but Esau ran to meet him. Esau ran to meet him. You ever think about that? You know, we think about that idea of running to meet somebody in, in, a, in a nice way. A lot of times when we think of the, the prodigal son, do we not? We think of the prodigal son returning home and it says that the father sees him afar off and ran to meet him. Right? And we, we look at that and we see the great love that the father has. Um, but I think sometimes if, if we're reading this slowly, we might still be a little cautious of Esau here. Ran to meet him though. Esau was anxious to see his brother. 20 years it's been since these guys were together. Now, I have never really had an extremely strained relationship with any of my siblings. I would not be surprised if, if some in here have. So I don't know personally what it's like to to have years and years and years of disagreement and hurt and pain and then to come back together. I don't, I don't, I've never experienced that before. Perhaps you have. Um, but I think it's interesting, you know, a lot of times we forget when we come to these passages that Jacob and Esau are not just brothers. They're twins. They're twins. I mean, these guys were like this probably growing up. I don't know about you, but most of the twins that I have known we're pretty close. They, they, they tend to share a special bond. <laughs> and so I, it's interesting that, that we have these two come together in this way after everything that has happened, after 20 years of, of being apart, Esau runs to Jacob and he embraces him, fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And they wept. You know, again, this is, um, we read this in about 10 seconds and move on. But you kind of you wonder how long that took. You know, 20 years of separation and they come back together. And it's almost as if this relationship is completely restored like that. And like I said, I don't know about you. I know I've had some uh, discouragement in relationship in my family. Um, and I don't know that, that I could say it's been completely resolved. But I don't know about you. I don't know if you've gone through anything like this with separation and heartache and pain amongst family members. And you may be sitting here today thinking, I don't know if that'll ever be resolved. I don't, I don't know if we'll ever have this type of peace. Maybe on this earth you might not. 
I don't know. But we can pray for it. We can seek after it. We can offer peace, godly peace. Not the peace that says, hey, if you come and you do this, then I'll accept you. But godly peace that says, I accept you because of who you are. And here we have two brothers coming back together after 20 years. Those who probably should have pretty, pretty deeply seated issues, especially on Esau's, Esau's side. And yet even from Esau, we don't see a begrudging hug. We see them coming together and weeping. Weeping, perhaps over the time lost between them. Weeping, perhaps over the hurt that had been done. And they have this time together and we see a relationship that is restored and in our eyes almost immediately, but I would venture to say that this relationship was not restored in 10 seconds. It was probably restored over 20 years of God working on the hearts of these men. I don't know what your family relationships are like, but when God brings peace to those relationships, they'll be fully restored. Godly peace removes fear, restores relationships. But another interesting observation here is that godly peace renews contentment. It's a hard one to say, renews contentment. There's an interesting little back and forth here that I see in this passage uh, between Esau and Jacob. And and we see uh, Esau asks Jacob, who are these people that are with you? Um, And Jacob, you know, it shouldn't be any surprise to him that Jacob has multiple wives. After all, we saw Esau had two wives before Jacob left. And then he got another one or two, if I can't remember if it was one or two more after that. But so he's got multiple wives. So it's probably not a shock that they're his wives. But he says, who are all these people? And and Jacob says, this is the family that God has given me. This is the family that God has given me. And he, he introduces them one by one as they come up to Esau. And, he, and he, he's not only uh, restoring this relationship between these two brothers, but he's also building a new relationship with the rest of his family. Did you see that? It's not just the two brothers that are restored, but even the rest of these people who God has given Jacob are now restored and accepted with Esau. But we have this idea of contentment starting in verse 12. It says, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, back in uh, verse eight. It says, Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? If you remember last week, Eric talked about the fact that he sent all these different gifts ahead and they were supposed to be, you know, kind of sent in, in their own separate herds. And uh, he sent multiple different uh, herds up there to kind of, again, appease Esau as he came. And Esau says to him, what, what's with all this stuff that I saw along the way? You know, what, is that from you? You know, what's going on here? And, uh, and Jacob, you know, explains to him, you know, look, this is, this is for you. You know, this is my gift to you. Uh, I sent them to, to appease you. And Esau says to him, no, no, no. I, I, have, I have plenty. I have more than enough. I don't need anything from you. 
Again, think about that. If anyone should have a right to take anything, is it not Esau? Well, you cost me a lot of stuff. Because remember, Abraham was wealthy. Isaac was wealthy. You cost me a lot of stuff. If anyone had the right to take it, it was certainly Esau. But yet, what does he say? He says, no, 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 I have enough. I'm good. And of course, Jacob presses him. He wants to, to make sure that he, he accepts this gift. And, uh, and then we have this back and forth here. And finally, Esau says, um, says, okay, I'll take it. But it's interesting. Jacob also has the same response, does he not? He says uh, in verse 10, Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. Listen to this, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. Think about that. The joy that is in Jacob's heart. It's like to him, he's like, he's he's like, this is nothing. The fact that I have seen your face, that we have come back together, that our relationship has been restored, that is more important to me. I have seen your face and it is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that has brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. We've seen Jacob work two times, seven years long, to get the woman that he wanted. You know, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to look at these things and be like, well, maybe he should have just been okay with Leah, right? You know, we know it's better to just have one wife. Maybe he should have just been like, yeah, all right, well, you got me, Laban. <laughs> That's enough of those seven years. But, but no, he wanted Rachel, right? And so he worked. He worked seven years for each of them. We've seen Jacob seeking to better himself uh, while he contended with Laban, right? We've seen this back and forth between him and Laban trying to one-up each other, trying to, trying to get the better of each other. You know, he's trying to, to get more flocks out of what Laban has given him. Uh, so we've seen him manipulate and, and work and try to tr- try to better himself really by um, taking advantage of people, not willing to accept uh, what he's given, <laughs> but he wants more. And yet when he, when he comes to Esau, what does he say? He says, God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. I have enough. Even in the passage before, what was he doing? He was splitting up his possessions so that in case something bad happened, he could still keep some of it. And yet he comes to this passage and he says, I have enough. Why? Because God has blessed me. Even talking about his family, what does he say? He says, God has graciously given these children to me. See, he understood that he needed to be content with what he was given because what he was given was from God. It was not because of his manipulation. It was not because of his uh, negotiation. It was because God was directing his step. God was blessing him. And as he comes to this passage and he's, uh, he interacts with Esau and we see the peace of God in this situation, we see a contentment in Jacob that we have not seen to this point. 
He says, I have enough. Fourthly, godly peace realigns priorities. Godly peace realigns priorities. See, we've seen Jacob um, kind of focusing on the, the, the woman, right? And so he labors and labors and labors and works and works and works for 14 years for this woman that he desires. And then we see him desiring herds and he works and he manipulates and does all these things to try to get bigger and better herds. We've even seen Jacob as he leaves, uh, even, even though God commanded him to leave, we see him kind of doing it stealthily, sneaking away, you know, kind of hurriedly moving along in a way knowing that, that, uh, that Laban was going to be fast on his heels as soon as he found out. And his priorities to this point really have been focused on whom? Himself. Himself. Until we get to this last chapter in this chapter, we start to see him beginning to focus on others. And I think it's interesting as you read this passage, there's kind of this, this change. You know, he's so focused on not losing anything before. He's so focused on bettering himself and making himself uh, wealthy or getting what he wants. And yet when Esau says to him, let's go back, I'll, I'll go with you. Let's, let's travel back. What does he say? He says, no, 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 um, that's fine. We're all good. Um, I don't want to go too fast, you know, because he knows, he knows Esau and these 400 men, you know, since there wasn't a battle, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> they're, they're probably anxious to get back home. Uh, they're ready to go. They're, they want to get moving. And what is his concern here? His concern is for the well-being of his herds and his children. Do you notice that? His concern is for the well-being of his herds and his children. He specifically mentions uh, those who are um, feeding young lambs and, and goats and other things, right? He said, if we drive them too hard, they'll die. And he says, I'll go at the pace of the livestock and the children. See, he, he's no longer fearful that anything's going to happen. In fact, what, what, what does Esau offer next? He says, okay, but I'm, I'm going to leave some guys here with you to help you along. And what does Joseph say? He says, there's no need. There's no need. Everything is everything's good. Just go on ahead. Why? Because Joseph was at peace, knowing that God was going to fulfill his promise. And when Joseph was at peace, his priorities were realigned to those things that were more important. No longer was it important for him to, to try to protect and hold on to everything that he had been given. No longer was it important for him to try to manipulate his brother to get what he wanted, to hopefully restitution of some sort. No longer did he need to worry about, you know, whether he was going to live or not. He was at peace. And in that state of peace, he's able to rethink about what he should be prioritizing. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever gone through a difficult situation and it's rough and it's hard and, and I think of Peter at this time, right? And when he gets out of the boat and he steps on the waves and everything's going fine, but he looks and he sees the waves 
crashing in the wind, roaring. What happens? He starts to sink because his focus is on the wrong thing. And Jesus grabs him and lifts him up. And it's those times, even in the storm, when we're at peace, that we focus on the right things. Because when we're not at peace in the midst of the storm, what are we focusing on? How am I going to fix this? How how am I going to make this turn out the way that I want it to? How am I not going to lose my job through this? How am I not going to um, get sick? How am I not going to uh, deal with uh, all the, the, the problems that are, that are coming down the pipeline and it just looks like I'm not going to stop? How am I going to do that? I'm focusing on trying to fix the problem. But yet, when we stop and rest in the peace of God, what does he do? He reminds us of the important things. He reminds us of the things that we need to be focusing on. Because we're always going to be in a world of trouble. But that doesn't change how we're supposed to act. That doesn't change how we're supposed to respond. That doesn't change the things that should be important to us. That doesn't change how I as a father and as a husband am to treat my wife and my children. It doesn't change how I'm supposed to act as a believer in this world, when I go to work, whether that's in the office or sitting at home in front of my computer, that doesn't change. And the circumstances of life and the troubles of life, they're going to change. They're going to get hard and they're going to be rough at times. But the peace of God gives us that moment to breathe and realign our priorities and focus on what God desires for us to do. Number five, godly peace returns glory to God. Godly peace returns glory to God. God has promised Jacob way back when he left that he was going to bring him back here. He said, I'm going to bring you back here. I will go with you wherever you go. I will protect you and I will bring you back safe. We've seen God promise to give him the land that he promised to Abraham and Isaac. And here at the end of this passage, we see Jacob coming safely to the city of Shechem, which is the land of, which is in the land of Canaan. And what does he do? He goes and he purchases part of the land from the people of Shechem. Did you notice that? He came here and he pitched his tent and then he went and he bought the land that he was living on. And it doesn't, we don't know what specifically he used. It's it's interesting, it just says 100 pieces of money. (laughs) It's pretty big. We don't really know how much that was. But he, he is able to purchase this land. This is the first time land has been purchased in Canaan by Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob for the purpose of living. There was another land purchased. What was that for? Sarah's burial, burial, right? They didn't live there. It was a burial place. This is the first land of promise that is owned by one of the patriarchs. And we see God 
fulfilling the promise that he made to Jacob all the way back 20 years ago in Bethel. And he's faithful. And how does Jacob respond? In verse 20, he says, it says, there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. If you have a little number next to that, you probably read, it says, God, the God of Israel. God, the God of Israel. What did he do? He erected an altar. God has brought him from the place where he started back to the land of Canaan. He has fulfilled his promises. And here in this moment of peace that God has provided to him, he returns the glory that is due to God back to him. He raises an altar. It doesn't say that he sacrificed anything necessarily. We don't know. But he raised an altar, a clear symbol, a clear sign that this was something that was to worship God. And he named it God, the God of Israel. Five impacts of godly peace. You know, I, I won't go as far to say that all of these impacts are guaranteed in every situation. I don't think that scripture necessarily teaches that, at least not through this passage. But I think these are five impacts that if we will pursue godly peace, God may allow in our lives. The question is, are we pursuing godly peace? I want to look at the New Testament very quickly. <clears throat> if you, I'm going to go through these verses really quickly, so hopefully um, you'll be able to follow along. Just listen if you want. Um, I can give you the verses later. But I was just thinking about peace and how that affects us as believers. You know, it's one thing for to have this peace um, that we see in Jacob's life. Peace with his brother, peace with the people around him, just peace within his own family from what we can tell at the moment. And yet we as Christians can celebrate an even greater peace, can we not? Romans chapter five, verse one says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with whom? With God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Christ has provided the ultimate peace for us with God. We are people who have been given peace. We've been given peace with God. Ephesians 2, 13 through 22 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's speaking to the Gentiles here. And he says, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Colossians 1 Verses 15 through 20, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For, in, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Because Christ has provided peace for us with God, we no longer live in fear of judgment, but rather enjoy a restored relationship with our Creator. That's the peace of God for us today. Restoration of our relationship with our creator, but it doesn't stop with our relationship with him. But 12, 11 times, at least that I found in the New Testament, we as believers are called to pursue or to be at peace either amongst ourselves or with others around us. Did you know that? At least 11 times in the New Testament, we are called to be people of peace. Romans 14, 17 through 19. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, you should know this pretty well, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so that you also must forget. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell with you richly in Richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. First of all, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, first of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We're supposed to pray for peace. Second Timothy 2.22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Hebrews 12.14, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Did you, did you catch that? Strive for peace with everyone. Can I just be real honest with you right now? Most of what I see on Facebook from people who claim the name of Christ is not striving for peace. First Peter 3, 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue and his, and from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Finally, 2 Peter 3, 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We are to be people of peace, not merely peace that gives us what we desire, but rather godly peace that may mean we suffer in order to show the world what true peace looks like. Are we pursuing godly peace this morning? Jesus said, by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit. And you know, peace is one of those fruits. Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. Are we people who are pursuing peace or are we just people who are pursuing what makes us comfortable? Are we people who are pursuing what makes us happy in the short term? Are we people who are pursuing godly peace? If we are, it'll change our relationships. It'll change the way that we respond to one another within the body. It'll change the way that we respond to others outside the church. It'll remove us from fear. If we really are pursuing the peace of God, one of those passages, I forget which one off the top of my head, continues to say, what can they do to us? How, how can they hurt us? They can't. Because God's the one that's in control and our peace is in him. Are we content with where God has put us? 
If we're pursuing godly peace, then we will be. Are our priorities aligned correctly, biblically? Or are we still seeking after what pleases ourselves? And finally, are we returning the glory to God? When we see these things happen in our lives that are good, do we snatch up the glory? Or are we quick like Jacob to build that altar? God, the God of Israel. And say, God, you've done this. That's one of the things that I pray often uh, when I pray, especially when I pray publicly. A lot of times I'll say, you know, Lord, we'll give you the glory, right? It's almost become just kind of a mantra, unfortunately. But the question is, do we really? Do we really, when, when things happen good for us, do we give them the glory? When things happen that we don't think are good for us, do we give them the glory? Because either way, if we are people who have godly peace, we can glorify him no matter what the circumstances are. Father, we thank you that you are, as scripture calls you many times, the God of peace. That you are the God from whom peace comes, that you are a God who desires peace. You desired peace so much that you sent your only begotten son to come to earth and shed his blood, his perfect and righteous blood, so that he could create peace between you and your creation. God, we thank you for that this morning. We thank you that you are a God who pursues peace. Lord, I pray that you would help us as your disciples, that others would look at us and see that we are peaceful people. And by that, that they would know who it is that we follow, that we follow you because you are a peaceful God. Lord, help us not to be caught up in seeking our own version, our own brand of peace, which is really just selfishness, desire to see things be the way that we want them. Lord, help us to be a people who are willing to suffer if that means that we can enjoy your peace. Help us not to fear what man can do to us, but I pray that you would help us to be obedient to you, to follow what you've called us to do, and to live at peace as you've called us to live. And I pray that through that we would glorify you that you would be able to use us as salt and light in this earth. Not because of anything that, that we have done ourselves, but because of everything you have done for us and through us. For it's in Christ's name we pray.